Welcome, everyone, to episode 57 of Some Like It's Got, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we will be continuing the 2019 trend of really long movies by reviewing the film adaptation of the Pulitzer Prize-winning third novel from Donna Tartt, that is The Goldfinch. But before we get to that, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Scott, despite all of the long movies, and you know how I feel about long movies, but I really scheduled this one strategically right shortly after the Tennessee game started this week, so on Saturday, so that I would miss the game um, and you know would spend basically all of the game's running time in this movie, uh, and the plan worked. Now, Tennessee, of course, did win the game 45 to nothing, but they were playing against Chattanooga, so um, while, while no loss is out of the question at this point, um, that would have been, I think, even a bridge too far. Um, but uh, Gators this week, uh, I got a. I'm going down to Greenville to uh, to visit my friends. We're going to go to the Furman game, which I believe happens to fall right as the Tennessee game is going on. So my plan of uh, strategically scheduling things to miss the Tennessee games is working out pretty well so far. Well, congratulations on that. I know I I was not watching the Kentucky Gators game from last night, but I heard that Kentucky really blew it. Kentucky, Kentucky, Kentucky. I mean, they they act, they got out there and they acted like they were going to win, and then they remembered they were Kentucky in the fourth quarter, and so they let Florida's backup quarterback come in and uh, slice right through them. Well, you hate to see that. You do hate to see it. Uh, not really though, because it's Kentucky. Well, to each their own. To each their own. <laughs> Truly. All right, Scott. Well, as I already alluded to on today's episode of the podcast, we're going to be reviewing the John Crowley directed adaptation of Donna Tartt's 2013 novel, The Goldfinch. Largely occurring in two distinct periods of time, the film stars Ansel Elgort and Oakes Fagley as the older and younger versions of Theo Decker, the survivor or one of the survivors of a terrorist bombing on the Met Art Museum in New York City. With his mother dead and his deadbeat father in and out of his life, Theo's childhood quickly transitions from elite New York City private school, staying with the family of his wealthy friend Andy Barber, to rural Las Vegas public schools with his alcoholic dad and new girlfriend, Zandra, played by Luke Wilson and Sarah Paulson, respectively. With an all-star supporting cast that also includes Nicole Kidman, Jeffrey Wright, Finn Wolfhard, Aneron Bernard, and several others, the Goldfinch's story follows Theo through his troubled childhood in Las Vegas, all the way to his return to New York City and what adulthood has in store for him and his closely held secret, that being that he stole the famous Carol Fabricius painting, The Goldfinch, after surviving the bombing at the Met when he was young. Scott, did you find the narrative of Theo's dark trials and tribulations to be as compelling as Hobart and Blackwell found the titular painting, or did it fall a little bit flat? Yes, Scott. So um, regular listeners will know that this was one of my most anticipated movies of the year in my top five. Um, and that's because I love the Donna Tartt novel upon which it is based. I am a huge fan of, of Donna Tartt's uh, novels in general, um, Secret History and Little Friend being the others. Um, but The Goldfinch um, might be my favorite. I don't know. I do love the Secret History, but, um, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning novel. Um, 
there are things about it which made me think uh, that yes, this could be a great film or a great miniseries uh, because it is a 770 page novel. I think the caveat with all of Tart's writing though is that it is so de dense, so detailed, so meticulous. I mean, she spends 10 years writing a novel. Um, she's notoriously reclusive, right? Doesn't do really interviews about um, any of her books. She has like not been seen at all um, in any of the press coverage or anything for this movie. Um, you know, nothing has been said. Crowley did meet with her prior to making the movie, but nothing has been said about whether she pr has approved of it or not, really. Uh, and nothing probably will be said because that's just the way she um, conducts herself. Very reclusive. So, um, you know, I, I was I was always trepidatious, even though this was one of my most anticipated movies of the year about whether they could truly translate Tart's work to screen and not just whether they could translate to screen, but whether they could translate to screen in a film. And yeah, yes, it is a two and a half hour film, but uh, still, I think they're they're they get all the plot details in there for the most part. But I think they're still sort of scratching the surface, perhaps, um, at what makes Donna Tartt's novel uh, so special. And and yeah, it would have been better at, served as a miniseries, I'm sure. Even Sarah Paulson said that the ideal form of adapting uh, the Goldfinch would have been in a miniseries. Um, and with that being said, however, I think that this movie is a lot better than a lot of critics are giving it credit for. Because if you've if you've seen the reviews from this movie, it's getting crushed. And it's not just middling reviews. It is, you know, some some quite poor reviews. Honestly, um, a lot of people have really strongly disliked it. And while I didn't come down in the same camp as them, I guess I could see to an extent how you could strongly dislike the movie. I mean, it is long. It is slow. Um, you know, a lot of people didn't like the novel that Don, the, it was actually very controversial, the novel, The Goldfinch. A lot of people are, are fans of Don Tark's first two works, but there were some people who felt like this novel was just very melodramatic and cliched, um, and not up to the talents of Donna Tart. I mean, I saw David Ehrlich in his review at IndieWire said that the biggest problem with this movie was that it, uh, mistakes its novel, its source material for a great work of art. Um, so he's basically going after the film and the novel in tandem. And I think that's probably uh, where a lot of people get off uh, with their criticisms is they probably just, you know, didn't enjoy the novel or wouldn't enjoy the novel if they were to read it. Uh, because for the most part, this is a pretty faithful adaptation of the novel. Um, like I said, I think they can't really capture uh, some of the beauty of, of Tart's prose. But I think as far as the story and the characters, um, you know, it's all pretty much there in terms of what's in the novel and what's in the film. The major difference, I would say, and something that I wasn't a huge fan of, was the different structure in which the movie tells its story. Uh, in the book, the the movie functions in, you know, tells a, tells a primarily linear story, starting with um, Theo at the museum. Uh, we, we actually do get a few scenes with him and his mom before she is killed in the book. In the movie, we, we don't, you know, get anything about his mom. We don't even see her face for quite a while. Um, and, you know, we, we do start with the bombing, but uh, it flashes back and forth between uh, Theo as an adult, played by Ansel Elgort, and Theo as a young man, played by Oakes Fegley, as you noted. Um, and to me, I always, you know, I think that nonlinear storytelling can work really well. I'm not sure if this was well suited to it, because to me, there didn't seem to be a great rhyme or reason to... Um, Number one, why they did it, and number two, why they decided to like switch back and forth at the moments in the story that they did. Um, 
so I think that the structure was a bit messy um, and probably like some things like when we would flash to the adult timeline, there were some things that didn't make sense um, as, for example, Theo's drug addiction. They didn't really make sense because we hadn't gotten to that part in the uh, younger story yet. And yeah, maybe like there's there's an aspect of building some suspense by doing that, but I don't think there's any really like great revelations or twists in the story of the Goldfinch uh, that necess- you know that that are well served by this sort of nonlinear storytelling. So I think that um, is probably one of my biggest crit- criticisms of the movie. However, I did enjoy the film. Like I said, I think that it is a faithful adaptation. If you like the book, you will like the movie, and I fully acknowledge that. Um, Probably some of the reason I like the movie more than most people is because I really love the book. Uh, but I think that the themes of the novel are there and, and you know, are, are present in the film. And, uh, you know, I think they handle those in a pretty, you know, do a pretty good job handling those, whether it's, you know, like the the way that art lasts over time or the role of fate, um, the, the role that fate plays in Theo's life. Um, I think coincidence is a big part uh, of the story. Um, and some people will have a problem with that. I, I personally didn't because I think um, the movie is kind of about coincidence. And and so maybe there's one too many, but uh, I think it goes to, you know, the, the role that fate plays in the story. Um, and I think that for the most part, the performances are good. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about specifics and uh, maybe one performance that wasn't my favorite, but I think the supporting cast is really pretty strong in this. Um, and it's really the the filmmaking, the quality of the filmmaking is really excellent. I think John Crowley is a great director. Obviously, he made Brooklyn, um, which is a you know brilliant film. I think that his strength lies in directing period pieces like this. Um, I think Brooklyn demonstrated that, and The Goldfinch demonstrates that again. I think with Brooklyn, he was much, working with a much slimmer and more straightforward novel uh, by Colm Toybin. But um, here, you know, he has a a greater beast to work with and he isn't always successful in adapting it. But the filmmaking quality is always there. Of course, we also have to mention the cinematography by uh, the man himself, Roger Deakins, Um, never disappoints. And he certainly doesn't disappoint here. You know, this isn't a big special effects film uh, like Blade Runner 2049, for example, the movie that he won the Oscar for a couple of years ago. Um, But the way that New York is shot um, and... uh, you know, various shots of the the museum bombing in particular, I think, is is uh, realized in a really elegant way. Um, and a lot of that goes to the work that Deacons and Crowley both do. Nice musical score. So I think that uh, the technical aspects of the film are really excellent. Uh, and I think that while the storytelling, um, you know, it definitely has some missteps. Uh, overall, I think they got most of the good stuff in there. Uh, and although it is long uh, and it probably did maybe dragged a little bit in the last 10 or 15 minutes. Again, I think my familiarity with the book probably made it a little easier to swallow because I wanted them to sort of take their time and make sure that they were doing a faithful job with the novel. And for the most part, I think they did uh, a pretty successful job of doing that. Yeah. I think that that all makes sense to me. And we, you know, we were talking right before we started recording that I watched this movie earlier today and I can totally get how someone who has read the book you know, of course, if you don't like the book, it, it always is going to mean you're, you maybe you're not a huge fan of the movie. But like if you read the book, you probably have a greater appreciation for it because the main thing that I really felt 
when I left this movie is that I really wish that I had liked it more than I did. Cause it, cause it has the look and the flashiness and this, you know, the, the beauty of a film that should be really amazing. Like Deacon cinematography is really beautiful, gorgeous shots. Uh, like the twinkling lights and a lot of the, a lot of the indoor scenes and, and also the scenes in Amsterdam, Amsterdam, which is one of the opening scenes of the movie actually uh, from this hotel room. And it really just sets the the scene for something gorgeous. And you talk about it being a period piece. I mean, yes, this movie really only set like, I mean, only half of the movie is set like what, 10, 15 years ago. You'd know better than I would what the actual timeline looks like there. But it, it's so interesting to call this a period piece. And I completely agree with it. But And I think that the period piece feel really comes from the way that it's produced, the way that it's yeah. shot. And I thought it was gorgeous. It's definitely the highlight of the movie for me is, is that cinematography combined with, you know, the musical score and, uh, and just, you know, the, the cast in general, right? You talk about the cast being really strong. Uh, I, you, you, you know, you talk about the sporting cast between Nicole Kidman, Jeffrey Wright to some extent, I think Finn Wolfhard and, and um, Anya Rin Bernard are both are all really outstanding. I think there are some other people in there as well who are worthy of note, Sarah Paulson, et cetera. And for me, I, I just couldn't help but feel, kind of going back to my first point, that as beautiful as the film was and as you know impactful and meaningful as you can feel like the material should be, I just didn't feel like the movie ultimately brought something together that l- had any sort of emotional impact on me. Like I was watching something that I knew was beautiful, but it just couldn't quite reach out its grip and, and grab hold of me. Uh, and, I, and I'm still trying to wrestle with, with why that is and get my arms around it. But I think it ultimately probably translates to the fact that this is a 770 page novel. I haven't read The Goldfinch, but I have read The Secret History and I'm familiar with Donna Tartt's prose. And I was a little bit shocked to see it being adapted into a movie, albeit a two and a half hour one. I just think that what this film tries to cram into its, you know, 150 minute runtime and be faithful to that novel, as I think, you know, a lot of movies should be. It also did itself a, a disservice probably by blunting a lot of the emotional impact that some of I would imagine the finer details of the book having to be left out ultimately kind of detracted from the emotional impact of so what like again you watch them you're like this should be really impactful but it doesn't necessarily have that impact or at least it didn't have that impact on me and so that's so when i say that i can understand why someone who's read the book and and really processed and fully uh got to experience the build-up and the emotional impact of some of the climactic moments uh in this you know whether you call it piece of literature whether you know this movie uh i didn't have that luxury and i and i felt like I wasn't getting the full experience by watching by watching this film, which was really disappointing because it has a lot of the parts to be something really great. And I just felt like it was coming up a little bit short. Yeah, I mean, it, there's only so much they can do to sort of capture the epic sweep of the novel, I think, and yeah. particularly with some of the relationships. And one that I'll talk about that I think uh, is just missing the the emotional force that it had in the novel. But there are others, I think, that are successful. I think that I like the relationship between Theo and Boris. Um, mm-hmm. I think Theo, the b- between Theo and the, is it the Albert family the that takes him out? Barber. Barber family. Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. But uh, the Barber family, I think they do a good job with that relationship as well. Um, so yeah, they, again, there's there are always going to be limitations. And I think that... Um, the movie probably the movie definitely doesn't have the emotional force of the novel. And some of that probably comes from just what they had to leave out. 
Yeah. And you know, it, that is, that is what it is, right? You can't do much about it. You know, yeah. when you talk about epic sweep of the novel, that's, that, that's the only thing that I could possibly come up with as to why they took the, the, I guess the chronological approach they did in terms of starting near the end of the movie and flashing back for a good chunk of it to all these different time periods. That being said, I don't think that the epic sweep of the, of the movie justified like narratively the decisions they made because it left some parts feeling confusing. It also didn't really seem to serve a purpose. I mean, you talk about building suspense is often a reason why you start in the middle of a story and you know then flashback or, or show different time periods at different points. And that's often because you're building suspense to a big reveal that you don't know about that wouldn't have the same impact if you told things purely chronologically. I just don't think that it does that. Even with the drug use, it's not, like I didn't find that scene to be particularly climactic, even if it maybe should have been. And from that perspective, I, I do agree with your point about the structure of of the plot, et cetera, which we can get into a little bit later on. But if you don't have anything else to add, we can kind of jump into the performances at this point, sure. I think. Yeah, so why not start with the, you know, the lead character in this one? You know, we've alluded uh, to, to him already that his name is Theo Decker, the older version of whom is played by Ansel Elgort of Baby Driver fame from a couple years ago, as well as The Fault in Our Stars. And then uh, the younger version played by Oakes Fagley, uh, probably his uh, standout role so far. I didn't actually do the due diligence to see if he's been in any other significant role before this, but uh, a big, a big starring role for him because I, you know, I think if you got your stopwatch out, he definitely got more minutes on screen than Ansel Elgort did. Yeah. And so, Scott, do you think one of these or both of these guys stood out in particular for their leading role? Yeah, like you said, I think even though Ansel Elgort is the main guy, he's the guy you see in the trailers. He's the guy that people will know. Uh, this movie is is Oaks Fagley's movie for uh, the large chunk of it. Probably, you know, a solid two thirds of the movie um, is him on screen. And I think that's for the better, because I think he outacts his older counter counterpart here, uh, Ansel Elgort, by some distance. As a matter of fact, I uh, I really enjoyed the performance uh, that he brought to the movie, I think he did bring that emotional impact that I was looking for um, in some of the relationships and uh, the way he goes from, uh, you know, this sort of muted kid who uh, doesn't really know how to respond to uh, the death of his mother, the one person who was really close to him, uh, you know, to opening up to new people, whether it's Toby played by Jeffrey Wright or whether it's Pippa or, or whether it's Boris, uh, Andy, I was captivated by his performance throughout and i i really uh grew to like the character which i think is is very important because the character doesn't always make the right decisions and doesn't always you know do things that are going to endear you to him um but i think he gets you involved in the journey from the beginning and that's important uh you know for you to be able to stick with him through the the rougher parts of the story perhaps when we do uh see him as a grown-up as for ansel elgort Never been a huge fan of his. I wasn't thrilled about the casting of this when I saw uh, that he was going to be playing Theo in the movie. Um, and I think this movie hasn't really changed my perspective. You know, I love Baby Driver, but uh, his performance in that movie did not um, did not require a great amount of range. Um, and as for The Fault in Our Stars, um, don't like the movie. And I think his performance is honestly one of the main reasons why. Um, and yeah, I don't think he he brought a lot here. He's, he's kind of a wet blanket, honestly, in this performance. There's just not not a lot of emotion, I think, as opposed to Oaks Fegley. I think um, he, he doesn't emote um, in a very believable or convincing way. Um, and if it had been him on the screen for most of the time, I probably wouldn't care, wouldn't have cared 
much about this character, but I think because they did a good, great job laying the groundwork with, with Oaks Fegley playing the young Theo, um, I was invested enough until the end of the movie because of, because of what they did there. Uh, but I don't know that Ansel Elgort on his own would have been able to anchor this story. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know, like names aren't coming into my head as to who I would have rather seen as Theo. Um, but I, I don't Miles know that. Teller. Answer. I don't know. Yeah. He's probably a little bit older. Um, but maybe not. I don't know. Um, because it is a little bit confusing about how old maybe, um, Theo is supposed to be in the older timeline, but, um, Miles Teller. Yeah. It mu- I mean, much better actor, uh, for sure. Um, so I, I don't know, but I don't think Ansel Elgort was the right choice. I think my fears about him were confirmed. Um, however, like I said, with the caveat that because of the so- strong supporting cast and because of the strong work that Oaks Figley does, um, uh, in crafting this character, uh, I think the ultimate, the, ultimately the characterization of Theo is a lot more successful than it could have been. Yeah, for me, I have a little bit higher opinion of Ansel Elgort than you do. I haven't seen The Fault in Our Stars because that movie is just not for me. Baby Driver, I hear, I definitely hear what you're saying about, I mean, maybe actually you may not have said this on air, but off air, you definitely were talking about how, you know, pretty much anyone could have played that role. Uh, and I, I do think, though, that he did a good enough job, did what he was asked of. I just wonder if this particular movie version, uh, like the adult version of, of Theo Decker, if if it's not really Ansel Elgort's fault and it's just in fact like the way this character is developed on screen, I think that we get we don't get very much of Theo Decker as an adult. You mentioned that two-thirds of you know the the screen time is really set in that younger period of time, whether it be in New York City or Las Vegas. And I think that works well for the movie because I think Oaks Fegley is awesome. But to spend a little bit more time before switching over to what I'd say is the more positive, I just think that this adult version of Theo is someone who we don't really understand. I mean, we know exactly his we know his origin story to some extent we know why like what exactly it is that's bothering him with the with the goldfinch etc and you know we know about his troubled times in las vegas with his dad and his dad's uh, new girlfriend but what we don't know is how he became this you know this art you know this kind of like i don't know like con artist in some way of selling selling these they're not forged because they are honestly built, but he's then pawning them off and lying about what they are to sell them for more money. And one of the things that I found really disappointing, which we can talk more about later on and why I think that maybe it was just this format that didn't do it a very, a very good service in terms of adapting this novel is that I felt like we didn't get very much in the present tense about who Theo Decker was. We certainly got a lot of exploration of the continued relationships that he had with Nicole Kidman's character and then some of Kitsy as well and then Boris when he reappears. But we don't understand very much about Theo Decker and we have to rely completely on whatever happened, you know, again, however long ago that was, whether it was, you know, 10, 15, we don't, it's not, it's not really clear the time skip in the middle of the movie. But what is clear is that all of a sudden he's this guy who's willing to go, you know, willing to lie about the the pieces of furniture and the art that is being you know, re- refurbished and, 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 you know, put together by uh, Hobie and then sell it for, you know, a great an inordinate amount of money to people who don't really know what they're buying. And that to me feels like, while not an incredible leap because he's been, found himself in a very dire situation when we do skip forward in time. I do think that that characterization, however, is one where it's not entirely unbelievable to me that, Theo Decker is this person who is now like emotionally withdrawn and removed. And yes, he has this 
very weird relationship that isn't fully explored with Kitsy uh, beyond the, like the very surface level. And he has, of course, this ongoing, you know, trouble with both this Met, uh, you know, the, the terrorist bombing at the Met when he was younger, as well as, you know, his relationship with the painting itself, the Goldfinch. And, and um, sorry, I'm forgetting the girl's name, Pippa, like the, the, like the relationship he has with Pippa. It just felt like everything in like the quote unquote present timeline is left underdeveloped to the point where there's 15 minutes left in the movie and it feels like the plot all of a sudden kicks into gear. And I know this is this has kind of turned into a discussion of the plot more than it has uh, Theo Decker, but all that I think is to say that I'm not sure Ansel Elgort actually had that much to work with with the adult version of Theo. Does that mean that he could have done better than what he did? I think that is a fair argument to make. I think that some of the emotional bl like bluntedness of this film cer certainly has to lie on, at Ansel Elgort's feet, whether it's his character or a combination of him and his character. And for me, that is disappointing, but I, I hesitate to, you know, burn to, to burn Ansel at the stake uh, uh, for the emotional withdrawnness of his character because I wonder if that, in fact, was part of the part of the character that just wasn't developed enough. Yeah, no, I acknowledge that some of these things probably weren't fully developed. As for him becoming a con artist, I, you know, I didn't find I didn't have a huge issue with that. I think they do a decent enough job with, you know, he's. He's lonely, right? Like he's looking for someone to cling to. And the two people that he finds in moving to Arizona are, uh, you know, I guess if you want to count Xandra three, but Xandra, his dad and Boris, who are all self-destructive in their own way. Uh, and, you know, the dad in particular is uh, breaking the law, playing with, uh, you know, the the save money in the savings account and, uh, you know, all of the family's fina finances, um, you know, he's he's putting them out there on the line and gambling and um, all of that kind of stuff. And so I think uh, that we see Theo latching on to uh, the characteristics, you know, mostly negative characteristics of the people surrounding him. And, you know, Xandra even tells him, right, that, you know, you're becoming your father like you're, you know, you may have loved your mother more or whatever, but um, you're your father's son. Um, and yeah, maybe that angle is not fully developed, but I think there's enough of it there to where I bought, um, you know, at least that part of his transformation, even if I don't know how Ansel Elgort sold it. But you're probably right. Like, I think that it, there's, you know, it's it doesn't all fall on him. It, there's definitely uh, some of the some of the faults in the storytelling. Uh, huh, yeah. No pun intended. Um, that yeah. No. I, I. To your point, though, I hurt, agree, I agree with that. I. I think that it's it was believable. I just meant like when you actually get there again, it's not a huge leap of logic because you do see mm -hmm. the you know destructive influences that he has around him in Las Vegas. But you, I think what you don't see though is how he you know he goes back to New York City, ostensibly having this fresh start with Hobie, and you're not really sure why he doesn't go back and kind of. I don't reignite's not the right word, but like renew that relationship that he had with the barbers. It, it's not clear to me why he he had that like second or third chance, however you want to describe it. And it's not clear to me why it got wasted in such a way where you know he had you know, like he's basically becoming this con artist and he's deceiving both you know his partner and Hobie, but also these people who you know he could that could have been positive influences on his life. Yeah. No. I mean. Yeah. Like. It, Things things are underdeveloped. Um, I'm sure we could we could talk about more, and we will talk about more. But um, 
I think you make a fair point. Yeah. The other main character, I, I guess I spent a lot of time talking about Ansel Elgort there, but I do want to say Oaks Fagley is awesome. I really am looking yeah. forward to seeing whatever he does next. He really was the heartbeat of this film for a large portion of it. And, you know, we are going to talk about what is ostensibly another main character here in just a moment before we turn to the supporting cast. But in, in, for, for most, for all intents and purposes, he was the main character and the singular main character throughout the entire, you know, through two thirds of that movie. And Oaks Fagley yeah. did a great job carrying the movie forward. Yeah, awesome. I agree. Yeah, awesome. So switching gears to Boris, the younger version played by Finn Wolfhard, the older version played by, I feel like I've just been mispronouncing this name, Anyarine Bernard. I'm not sure if I'm getting that right or not, so my apologies. But yeah. uh, Scott, what did you think of this sort of, uh, if there is such a thing, a major, the, the most major supporting role in the movie, uh, Boris, obviously, we don't get to see him too much until about the halfway point of the film when you do move to Las Vegas, and even then a little bit into the time in Las Vegas. But does he have the same impact on you that Oaks Fagley did? Or, and when I say that, do I mean, of course, Finn Wolfhard's uh, performance have the same impact? And is Anjurin Bernard a stronger uh, performance in your mind than his counterpart in Ansel Elgort? Yeah, I got to give it to the kid once again, I think. Uh, <laughs> Finn Wolfhard, I, and part of this is that Anjurin Bernard just doesn't really have that much screen time, to be quite honest. Um, no. I think that Finn Wolfhard does a great job. You know, the, he he's a young star on the rise for a reason. You know, we saw him and he's Stranger Things is where he made his name. Uh, the It movies, he was great. Um, and, you know, here's another step for him, I think, um, into becoming a household name. I think he does a nice job. Um, his accent is dodgy. There's no doubting that. Um but I also thought that maybe some of that came from the fact that this character has lived all over, right? Okay, he's from the Ukraine, but one of the first things we learn about him is that he's lived about everywhere in the world. So uh, maybe maybe that's kind of them explaining away why his accent is maybe not the greatest. Um, but it, it didn't bother me too much, to be quite honest. Um, and yeah, I think he has a lot of personality. I think that people are going to be happy to see this character come on screen because there are, you know, like I said, the movie is long and slow, right? And um, there's not a lot of like big personalities. Maybe the only other one that you get is is Zandra, um, but uh, a lot of it is very understated. And then when Finn Wolfhard comes on screen, he just kind of he really lights up the screen immediately um, with this sort of manic energy that he has. You know, he's drinking and smoking and um, you know acting dropping like he's much acid. Old. Right. Acting much older than he actually is. Um, and he draws Theo into this sort of self-destructive circle. And he's both a friend and sort of, you know, a foil to Theo in in different ways. Um, and I think that the scenes between them together are great, are some of the best parts of the movie. Um, and the friendship that forms between them um, is, you know, is pretty lovely. And uh, so I, I really like the what what Finn Wolfhard brought to the role. And I thought he and uh Oaks vaguely played off each other well. As for you know the older version, like I said, he doesn't have much screen time. I think he follows through on the character. Like there wasn't any sort of disconnect for me between uh, the character that Finn Wolfhard was playing and the character that uh, Bernard was playing. But um, I just don't think he's given much of an opportunity to shine. But Boris uh, is a great character, and I think uh, a solid addition in this movie and well cast. Yeah, Boris is just that breath of fresh air that I think the movie needed about halfway through because, you know, you spent a lot of time really in your feelings with uh, 
with Theo, so to speak, again, even though I think not really, or at least feeling like you should have been in your feelings with Theo, and for some, to some extent you were, but Boris is that manic energy that you're talking about, and Finn Wolfhard captures it perfectly. I was just thinking after watching the movie, though, that if there's like a remake of The Parent Trap, they need to have a male version where Finn Wolfhard and Timothy Chalamet play like the, the twins uh, in the movie that are like separated at birth and then reunited at summer camp, but that's a, I digress on that point. I think overall that, you know, Finn Wolfhard, he is, he's a, he's a magnetic personality on screen, whether it's this character or whether it's the way Finn is, Finn Wolfhard is playing it. I'm not entirely sure, but one of the things that I do like is, you know, is he a positive force on Theo? Nah, medium, right? But one of the things that you do appreciate, I think, is that he is a, a foil to what you have going on at, at home with the you know with his dad and with Zandra who definitely are not positive influences in, in young Theo's life and so when you get that on screen you get you get Finn Wolfhard's performance it's great and then you know you talk about how Boris doesn't get much screen the older version of Boris doesn't get much screen time and that honestly can't be understated it feels like he has like three scenes in the movie and part of it you're just like wow it, it, it and this just goes back to my point from before where it felt like all of a sudden, they're at like two hours and 15 minutes of runtime. They're like, crap, we still have such a large chunk of the story to tell. We're going to rush through it now. And so there was a bit of some pacing issues there for me overall. And I think Boris's adult version of the character uh, is a victim of that, you know, mispacing at the end of the movie. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the way that these characters get back together um, in the adult timeline is something is another element of the movie that I think. They, I don't understand why they changed it from the book because in the book, yeah. Boris like seeks out Theo, right? Which makes much more sense. Like he feels guilty about what's happened with the painting. He wants to track Theo down. But in this, they just encounter each other in a bar. Um, you know, when when Theo goes to look for drugs, and I think that um, even though coincidence and fate play a role in the story, I think that was a bridge too far. Like I think that was just one coincidence too many, and they probably. Um, leaned into that because it was a, a theme in the movie but i don't know that uh that really paid off because it, it did feel like okay that's a little bit uh fortunate yeah that was the one thing that really stood out to me about incredible coincidences but i mean i shrugged my shoulders it's the movies yeah i mean i think it makes sense that he would get back with the barber family and stuff like that but totally yeah um, yeah that, yeah that I, if anything, it was weird that he hadn't already gotten back together with the Barber family. Right, right, right. Um, I, don't, I don't know why there was a, a protracted time there. Maybe he was just trying to put that behind him. But yeah, that made sense to me, at least. Yeah, I mean, he was trying to put it behind him, and then they got back together, and all of a sudden he's uh, engaged to to Kitsy, So, But he wasn't. He didn't. He never really loved her, though. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think the movie makes that very clear. Uh, I mean, I think the scene between him and Boris, right, and and there he's talking about the marriage and that he's seen her with another man, and um, Boris, you know, senses that he uh, he is very hesitant about whether he actually loves her, and that's because he loves someone else, and that was an element of the movie that I think uh, what and, and maybe one of the reasons you're you're expressing more ambivalence is because. Uh, one of the weaker parts of the story, I think, was the relationship between him and Pippa, which is one of the strongest points yeah. of the novel. 
but we'll get to that in a second. Yeah, I was saving. I was saving that one for for last, probably. But you know, on that note, we'll talk some more about some of the supporting cast. You could mention Pippa if you'd like to. She has two actresses who play her as well in the younger and older versions. But there is a whole host of supporting cast members. If you had to pick one or two who were the standout performances, who would they be? Scott, my easily my favorite performance in this movie, Jeffrey Wright as Hobie. I think he is absolutely wonderful um, as uh, this kind-hearted uh, character who, um, you know, again, by fate, right? Uh, you know, it meets Theo. Theo meets him be- by fate because uh, of what happens in the museum and uh, the fact that Welty Blackwell leads him to the store that he and Hobie ran together. Uh, and uh, I think uh, he played the, he plays the role so perfectly. And Jeffrey Wright, honestly, not someone that I'm always a huge fan of. I think he has a tendency to go over the top with some of his roles. Uh, but here, I thought he was so nicely understated. I thought that he uh, fit the tone of matched the tone of the movie really well. Um, he was believable. And, you know, there's a scene at the end of the movie between him and Theo, probably my favorite scene in the movie, um, where uh, Jeffrey Wright, where uh, Hobie has discovered about the painting. Um, and I think his acting in that uh, scene is is a pretty masterclass. It's pretty much a masterclass and like restrained emotion and picking the right moments to uh, be more emotional and picking the right moments to be more restrained uh, in a way that I think is consistent with the character. So I thought Jeffrey Wright, absolute home run. I wanted more of his character, but I think what's there uh, is a wonderful supporting performance. Nicole Kidman, um, you know, I, I could take take or leave this performance, honestly. I don't think they needed someone of Nicole Kidman's caliber, to be quite honest, to play this role. She doesn't have a huge role. She's obviously like the stand-in mother figure um, who replaced Theo's mother um, and, you know, really cares for Theo. And I thought they did a fine job with the character um, and developing the character, but it's just not that important of a character uh, in the grand scheme of things. And so I think Nicole Kidman was perhaps a little bit wasted in this role. Um you kind of get the impression that this character is like the reason that he's marrying Kitsy. It's very strange the way they develop it. I, I'm curious if that translates to the book too. Yeah, I, I I almost feel like they tried to integrate her maybe even a little bit more in the movie because because they had Nicole because Kidman. they had Nicole Kidman. Uh, but even still, I just don't think it's that important of a character. Uh, maybe Nicole Kidman was kind of like pulled a Reese Witherspoon and was like, I love the book. And so I want to be in the movie um, or have something to do with the movie. And so this was the only character to naturally plug her in as. Um, so, yeah, overall, I think that the supporting cast does a really nice job. Definitely one of the strongest parts of this movie, even if, you know, some of the characters may have been underused. Um, I think that ultimately uh they, they leave a strong impression with, of course, Jeffrey Wright for me being the standout. I think he is really wonderful. Yeah, I, I agree that Jeffrey Wright probably is the standout. Uh, you know, I don't know if I need to sit here and repeat everything that you said. You necessarily said about him because of, you know, he is that person who, you know, you, you get sprinkled kind of effectively throughout the movie. He's kind of the one character who just pops up in, seemingly in every portion of the film, uh, besides, of course, Theo. And I think that's uh, it, it's it's served well. He's this nice old man. Maybe he has some strange motivations. Maybe we don't fully understand his obsession with the goldfinch, but he's obsessed with it. Like he's this guy who who makes furniture, refurbishes furniture, all these things, pieces together furniture. But all the while, you know, he and his previous business partner, uh, Welty Blackwell, they have this obsession with the goldfinch. 
Um, and maybe his character background is left a little bit in mystery on that note, but he does have these really uh, strong moments in, in multiple points of the film, sometimes just being the kind old man who tells him, you know what, you're, you're safe here after all the things you've been through. Uh, and then other times, you know, dishing a little bit of honesty to, right. to Theo hear, Decker. Hear me out on this one. It's almost a Willem Dafoe in Florida Project sort of performance. No, sorry. I don't agree with that. But yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah that's that, that's a that's a bridge too far for me. But yeah, I, I don't know. I think that the, the character is not developed enough for, for it to be. Uh, not, no, I'm not like saying that. it's on the same level, but I think in terms of the kind of character that it is and the way that he plays it. Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe the, the, way that the reasons it. you were saying, you know, the reasons that you were saying, like, you know, he's, he's kind and open hard when he needs to be perhaps even when he shouldn't be, but he's also not afraid to be honest. Um, and to, you know, mm -hmm. come for Theo when he needs to <laughs> come for Theo. Yeah. So I, I think that, that he's definitely that standout. And then if I had to pick one other person, I would, I would note Sarah Paulson because her character is just so different. Like I was telling you before we started recording that I basically did a double take. I like, it took me a moment to figure out that it was Sarah Paulson uh, behind the glow up that she gets for this, for this particular uh, performance relative to some of the other more recent performances we've seen Sarah Paulson. in. you know, even if you, I mean, of course for the people versus OJ Simpson, it's quite different, but even if you go back to earlier this year when she was in glass and you know, a completely different role, completely different, type of performance she's asked to do. And I think she does a really good job, even if she only has a little bit to work with in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, Glass, another movie that I think was probably a little bit unfairly maligned by critics. But uh, yeah, she's good in both of them. Yeah. So, all right, Scott, switching gears to the plot. One of the things that you mentioned, which is probably my, one of my biggest concerns with you know the underdeveloped nature of the story and that is the relationship between theo and pippa it seems like it's going to be something that's really important in that first third of the movie and it might as well not have been there in the rest of the film yeah scott uh this is definitely one of the biggest areas of disconnect between the book and the film because it's one of the highlights of the the book it's one of the most compelling parts of the book i think is this sort of epic love story that happens between um theo and pippa and you know ultimately unresolved because um they they simply can't be together and i like that they left you know that realistic element in the movie there's no hollywood ending for for theo and pippa mm -hmm. um, which is i think is right but there's so many more scenes of them together when she is recovering from the bombing um you know and is sort of bedridden there's like there's a lot of scenes there in which they really build up uh, the relationship and the chemistry between the two of them there's the whole other story about Pippa going to like a school for troubled teens and stuff in the book. And, you know, Theo encounters her some, uh, you know, a little bit more when he's a teenager and uh, you know, he's come back to Hobie. Um, none of that was in the movie. Um, and yeah, I, I just didn't get it. Like you said, I mean, it's interesting that you, you talk about how you're un you were unsure about how his feelings were for Kitsy. And I think that, again speaks to that they sort of mishandled the Theo and Pippa love story at least they didn't give you enough of a sense of the depth of these characters feelings for each other um, because in the book at least in of my memories of the book there's really no uh, no no doubts about who Theo loves the whole time and that's Pippa um, and that's unfortunate because I think that could have you know m maybe including some of those scenes instead of um, some of the the ways in which they chose to depart from the book uh, would have been a better use of uh, their 
space in this movie because I think for the most part they try to remain so faithful to the book and Crowley is obviously really concerned about sticking to the book and being authentic uh it's just interesting that they chose to sacrifice the storyline a little bit yeah and to give some credit like they do have a very significant scene where you're it's definitely implied that he has these really strong emotional feelings asking her to come back to New York City and leave London leave her current boyfriend things like that and, and leave the life that she's built up for herself there. And that's not something that she's you know willing to do. And I think that that is an important thing, but because that there isn't that foundation of a relationship that you're describing that maybe the book develops it to me, it, it, that almost lands flat and it seems more of out of desperation. You know, he finds himself in the situation where maybe the woman that he loves, maybe doesn't love is cheating on him and doesn't really take him seriously. But there is this girl who has, he has this history with, but maybe he doesn't necessarily love either from the perspective of the movie uh, that, you know, he's just trying to hook in and, and bring back into his life in a way that will give him some sort of like emotional release or satisfaction that he's been probably seeking in drugs for, you know, however long he's been doing it. And so in that sense, I think it's a little bit muddled, but then there's also this component and just kind of rope in another part of the narrative where, you know, you have this relationship between him and Boris and, you know, you talk about it being unclear who he loves in the movie. I thought it just as likely that he would be in love with Boris than, you know, he he, he would be to be yeah. in love with Kit with Kitsy or, or less so Kitsy, but but with Pippa specifically. And I think that, you know, that was one of my biggest confusion because it sounds like the book develops it differently. But the movie spends just as much, if not more time, developing that very emotional relationship between him and Boris. And, and that also is something that is kind of left to to fall flat and maybe fitting fittingly so in the grand scheme of things, given uh, what comes to pass in the, in the present timeline between Boris and Theo. But another interesting point, I thought, uh, when all was said and done with the movie. Yeah, I think maybe it's a little bit more believable that Boris would have feelings for Theo, maybe than the other way around. Uh, and they do sort of hint at that in the movie, I think. But uh, they they chicken out a little bit, I think. But but also, as you pointed out, I think it wouldn't make sense for that to happen in the present day timeline, considering, uh, you know, what has gone down in the interim, uh, with Boris and the painting. Um, but also I think, you know, the, the role of the painting and, you know, that it, it represents so much that Theo is clinging to in the past. Um, and I think that this movie kind of makes it all about the mom. Um, whereas I think Pippa was a huge part of that in the book as well. It wasn't just, uh, you know, the mom, uh, it was Pippa because, of course, she's right there in the bombing as well. She was uh, standing right with him at the Goldfinch. So she's as much of a, a part of, um, you know, that memory as his mom was and even even Welty Blackwell to an extent. Um, so I, I think that the movie did bungle that a little bit, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and one final point before we probably end of our wrap up phase, unless you do other stuff with the plot, you want to talk about it and bungling the overall narrative of the book. I, I think that obviously there's such weight and importance and, and meaning tied into the goldfinch and what it means, what it means to Theo, but also what it's supposed to mean in this kind of more macro sense. Uh, when, when you, when you hear it from the mouth of Hobie, right. Talking about how it's like meant to be passed down. It's meant to survive time. Uh, it, 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 while people die, it, you know, remains eternal and gets passed down from person to person. And I think one of the things that gets a little bit lost maybe in, in the mix for me is that if you think back about why he had the painting to begin with, you know, it's because Blackwell told him to take the painting with him. And maybe he meant, maybe Blackwell meant for him to take the painting and give it to Hobie, which he didn't do. But I found there to be an interestingly, like an interesting lack of, of 
of empathy for the situation or, or a lack of exploration uh, uh, that, you know, of the situation that led him to actually have the painting for so long and not, and not give it up. And, and I, as, as powerful as that scene, like you mentioned, should have been, or should have felt with, with Hobie in that climactic moment where he berates Theo for having lost the painting. And I also wonder, you know, how was Theo supposed to know any of this about the painting to begin with? Uh, and so something, something else, I wonder if it got lost there or if maybe that's something in the book just doesn't fully explain either and just leaves it up to interpretation. I mean, you know, it, it's, it seems like with all the newspaper stories and everything that's coming out about the paper or, or the painting and the fact that it was lost uh, or, you know, simply the fact that Theo has had this painting for, you know, decades would have caused him to seek out some sort of information or at least uh, become aware of it um, s secondhand, like through the newspaper or something. Uh, so I don't know that that didn't bug me as much. I think uh, I do understand where Jeffrey Wright is coming from of, um, you know, as he as he yells out in the scene in, a, in the great moment, I think he says, you know, it wasn't yours to keep. Um, I think Theo should have realized that even if he didn't realize the entire significance behind the painting and, uh, you know, how what led to the painting created being created and the fact that it survived a bombing and all of that as well. Sure. I think that's fair. All right. Any parting thoughts you want to leave before we enter our wrap up phase or are you good? Let's wrap up. All right, Scott. We already know what your favorite scene is going to be, but why don't you just go full and wax lyrical on it? Yeah, no, it's it's a great scene. I think for all the reasons that I've said, you know, Jeffrey Wright's performance, strong, one of the strongest parts of the movie. And this is his scene, right? This is uh, where he gets to show off his acting uh, ability. And he does that to great effect, I think. Um, definitely hammering home the theme about uh, the role of art and, you know, the the fact that it endures over time ultimately, um, but that we have to we have to protect art uh, and the value that it can bring to society. So great scene. Yeah, definitely one of those scenes that I definitely uh, watched, experienced and felt like it should have affected me more. Uh, unfortunately, a culprit of, of not quite hitting hitting home with me. For me, I think one of the scenes that did hit home with me really well and that I thought it was a the perfect example of the strong acting performances from two of my standouts, that being Oaks Fagley and Sarah Paulson. And that is this, you know, that final scene in Las Vegas where, you know, he and, and Boris are hot, are tripping acid and he goes back to his house and there you have Zandra and her friends. And they discover that his dad uh, played by Luke Wilson has most likely been a set like killed, murdered by this, by is it Mr. Silver or whatever his name was. Uh, that's like the assumption that I drew, at least, uh, that he probably owed this guy a lot of money. And uh, so he was he may have been fleeing this fleeing town uh, when they caught up with him, but he, they caught up with him. Nevertheless, sorry, you look like you're about to say something. No, no, that, I, I think that it's a little unclear from the I mean, that's definitely right. But I think that that's definitely unclear from the movie, because I think they also kind of make you think he could have committed suicide. Yeah, skip, hop, and a jump, so to speak, the way that they that they make you draw some conclusions about the particular circumstances of his death. That being said, though, you you know you have him in the house, and they're kind of shocked first just to see people there because people weren't supposed to be there. Uh, but then too, you have this moment where you know they're high, and like he doesn't like his dad very much, and the whole situation, I'm sure, uh, isn't necessarily funny if he were sober, but is funny when he's on acid. And you have this weird, this I think this incredible interaction between him and Sarah Paulson that leads to this climactic line that you mentioned earlier about, you know, you may not, 
you may not have had time for your father, but you're just like your father or, or you're your father's son or yeah. what exactly. I can't remember the exact wording, but something along those lines. And I thought that was definitely the, the climactic moment for Sarah Paulson. And it was a moment for acting wise that I thought really spoke to Oaks Fagley, Oaks Fagley's quality in this film. Yeah, that's definitely a standout scene as well. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. Yeah. In spite of some of its flaws, um, 7.0, I think that, um, I was still captivated. I think that, you know, a lot of the pieces of what uh, Donna Tartt, um, you know, what made the Donna Tartt's novel so special are here. Um, it wasn't the, it's certainly not the disaster that I feared it could have been when I heard that they were going to make this into a movie. Uh, but it's also not uh, the home run or at least the, you know, the best possible cinematic adaptation that they could have made uh, of this novel. So I'm somewhere in the, in the middle, but uh, I, I will come out at a 7.0 just because, uh, you know, it's pretty faithful and I do love the book. Go read the book. Yeah, you know, honestly, I will say the movie did its job and that now I feel like I really want to go read the book. We'll see if I actually get around to it because it's, it's a big investment of time. But, you know, it, it did kindle it that desire and it's kind of been sitting on the back of my mind to read the book for a while ever since the, especially since the movie adaptation was announced. For me, I don't think it's going to surprise our listeners to hear that I'm I'm much more negative than you on the film. And so I'm coming out significantly lower on this one at a 4.8. All right, Scott. That should do it for our discussion of The Goldfinch. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing the past week's news and trailer drops. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, I lied just before we went to we went to break. We don't have any trailers for this week. Sorry to disappoint all of our avid listeners who, for some reason, listen all the way through the movie reviews just to hear the trailer talk. But we do have some bits of news, and a lot of it is going to be superhero movie, comic book movie related. Starting out, we have some casting rumors for one of the Disney Plus TV shows that we're very much looking forward to in the MCU, and that is for the Hawkeye television show and that is what we were hearing that Haley Steinfeld might be taking on one of the lead roles as Kate Bishop the kind of the the new to be Hawkeye the the person that Jeremy Renner will be training to be the new Hawkeye in this in this uh, MCU Disney plus TV show Scott how exciting is this news for you as I know that you are a big Haley Steinfeld fan yeah absolutely she's wonderful um you know she is she has shown that she is such a versatile actress um i think whether it's you know dramatic work like true grit um or you know great great comedy chops too and something like the edge of 17 uh or even begin again um where she had a smaller role i think um she's a very talented actress um and you know again it's it's exciting to see marvel going in uh, a more female centric direction uh with some of some of these heroes i think uh, you know, we weren't under the impression that uh, Hawkeye was going to last forever, I guess. And um, there, you know, this seems like a good way to pass the mantle. Um, I just hope that Haley Steinfeld is willing to commit and get involved because I'm sure that uh, there are a lot of other movie projects out there that she's being courted for or probably already in development. Um, so, yeah, this this would be exciting. I hope it comes true, but uh, remains to be seen whether it will. Yeah, this was definitely not one that's in the in the confirmed bucket yet, but it would I think it would be big, right? I mean, we saw her in something like Bumblebee 
last year. I know I should say we. I saw her in something like Bumblebee last year. I think that you still haven't seen it, but I think she's wonderful in that one, and, and that kind of shows her her ability and chops to take on you know that you know franchise level role. You know whether or not she will come back in a future Transformers you know related franchise movie that remain that remains to be seen again i think that there's definitely some merit to what you're saying about you know she's getting she has all you know she has all the projects she wants at her fingertips you know if she wants to be in something people will want her to be in it because she's proving that she has such versatility as an actress you know to your point with the something like the edge of 17 or begin again but also with bumblebee and now hopefully with this hawkeye series i think it's going to be a really cool role will we ever see her in mcu film i think that's a big question mark that might be what you're referring to here as depends on how committed she wants to become to the franchise. But it also, that might just be a role that, that sits and lives on Disney plus and is just an insular story therein. We know that Kevin Feige and the people over at Marvel studios want to very closely integrate those TV shows with the film franchise. We're already getting hints of that between, you know, Scarlet Witch and, er, and vision, the WandaVision show that we know is going to be a kind of a direct spin out from, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, if I'm getting the name right. That's a mouthful. It, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we're already getting hints of, of that it's going to be closely tied, but we'll see. You know, I, I'm sure that the fact that, you know, having Haley Steinfeld to, to play alongside Jeremy Renner in that, in that legacy Hawkeye performance, I think it is going to be a big draw. And, and, you know, if Marvel's has to settle with just having her in this one TV show and not getting her to commit to a large number of movies, I think they probably would still take that. Yeah. One thing I'll add to is I'll be interested just to see what the like, storyline for this character is because it certainly seemed like from Endgame that uh, Hawkeye's daughter was who he was, you know, sort of grooming to be the next Hawkeye, at least from that first scene. Um, and presumably his family has all come back now um, after the events of Endgame. So uh, we'll be interested to see how that, how, if that factors in and if so, how it does. Uh, but yeah, excited for this. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think you're not wrong about that. I think that it, it he might have a change of heart about whether or not he wants his daughter to become an Avenger and follow in his footsteps, but we'll see. Yeah. Uh, that's several years out, but it's cool casting if it does get confirmed. Yeah, absolutely. All right, and another taste of comic book movie-related news. Matt Reeves' Batman movie, we know it's going to start filming. It's already entered pre-production, so it's going to start filming probably you know by the end of the year or early next year, and we got some casting rumors. It, rumor, rumor has it that Jamie Foxx and Giancarlo Esposito are being eyed for roles uh, in this film, along with the story, we, I also heard a rumor that at one point in time, Mahershal Ali was also being eyed for the role of James Gordon in in this bat in Matt Reeves' Batman movie. But uh, you know, maybe the the Trinity or sorry, the Blade movie at, at in the MCU uh, might have derailed that. And so there's a question mark about you know, will Jamie Foxx maybe be Jim Gordon? Will Giancarlo Esposito be Gordon? Will one of them be Alfred? Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, possibilities here. Maybe they'll end up playing villains as well. You know, we, we, we haven't yet confirmed who the villains are going to be, who the plot, uh, what exactly the plot storyline is going to be. So lots of, lots of things very much still in flux over there, but you know, knowing that these two people could be in the movie, Scott, does that get you excited? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, Giancarlo Esposito is not someone that I have a huge familiarity with, uh, but I know enough about his work and his sort of acting uh, you know, persona that I think he would be a good, a great fit for Alfred, as a matter of fact. Of course, we don't know this specific role, but you threw that out there. And I think that that's, uh, that would be a great possibility. As for Jamie Foxx, I've heard people talking about the Riddler. And I also think that would be an awesome casting to have Jamie Foxx as the Riddler. Um, I think he, he, he could bring the sort of, uh, 
giddy fun sort of energy that you think about defining that character um, while still, uh, you know, ha having enough dramatic chops there to uh, make you believe him as a villain. So uh, obviously remains to be seen uh, what, uh, you know, you know what, what roles they will play, whether they will even be in the film. Um, but I think there is good space there for both of them uh, if, if they do decide to go down that route. Yeah, I think that that is all, all, another one of the rumors that I heard as well in terms of Jamie Foxx being a villain with the Riddler. My biggest concern with that is he basically already played a role similar to that in The Amazing Spider-Man 2. So I don't know if the world wants another Jamie Foxx uh, villain show like that. And, and I'm not here saying that Jamie Foxx was one of the things that was wrong with The Amazing Spider-Man 2, but uh, an unfortunate association to have if that were the role he were to step into. Ne never saw it, um, and I think that probably for the best, but I think he probably deserves another chance in uh, what will hopefully be a better film. Yeah. I, I mean, that's certainly true. I think that, you know, him, him playing Electro in the amazing Spider-Man two wasn't, uh, didn't, didn't just didn't, didn't go over that well. Right. And, and he played it in a way that I think people are worried that he might have to play something similar to the Riddler. Does he deserve a second chance to, to do his shtick in a movie that could be much more successful and much better? Absolutely. Would Matt Reeves want that association with his film? Probably not. I don't think Warner Bros. would probably want that either. So I, I, I do hope that he gets cast because it is exciting, but I wonder what role it would be in. That's a good point. Yeah. All right, Scott. Switching over to the awards circuit, or sorry, not awards circuit, the festival circuit, which we've gotten a little bit of in the last few weeks, both with the Venice International Film Festival and the Toronto International Film Festival. We're talking about the two winners of the big prizes over there. The first over at Venice, the Golden Lion Award, going to joker scott how important is this for uh your excitement of this film kind of confirmation that this movie is doing more than just being your run-of-the-mill superhero movie it's doing something darker something a little bit more artsy dare i say something a little bit more grounded gritty real joaquin phoenix playing this mentally or this person who's falling into mental illness becoming deranged becoming a killer as we know the joker is Scott, does this get you more excited? Does this get you excited for this movie's chances in Oscar season or none of the above? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, certainly seems to indicate that this is, like you said, more than your average superhero movie uh, and that it does, it is going to have some velocity uh, around Oscar season. Um, it is a surprise at the same time, just because you know, it was controversial. The The first takes on the movie were very controversial. It's only going to be more controversial, I'm sure, as the movie hits its wide release. Um, and, you know, a lot of the films that uh, were, were more critically successful, e even the critics who uh, I think did enjoy Joker and did think it was a good film, uh, I, I don't think we're in the boat of this should win the Golden Lion. Uh, I think there were, you know, other movies like... Uh, like a hidden life, which is the new Terrence Malick movie or portrait of a lady on fire, which is gaining like a lot of buzz. Um, those types of movies, maybe that you would have expected to see um, more at the top of the top of the bill when it comes to the golden lion and that you'll probably see in more critics top 10 lists at the end. Um, but perhaps, you know, Joker won out of recognition that, uh, you know, this is subverting what we expect from a mainstream film. Uh, and that is something that should be celebrated. Um, you know, whether we will celebrate it, I guess remains to be seen for when the movie comes out. Um, but you know, it can't be a bad thing. Yeah. And, and I'll raise my hand and say, I'm someone who I, I'm 
approaching Joker with a hint of skepticism about whether or not it's the yeah. movie, the movie we need right now. Uh, but I am. That doesn't mean that I'm not excited for it and excited to see what Joaquin Phoenix does with with that with that role because it is a very special one. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you. I think. All right then. All right, you talked about movie movies that might be gaining velocity come award season. The other one, which won the People's Choice Awards at TIFF uh, just this past weekend, that was Jojo Rabbit. Scott, we have talked a lot about this movie over the last you know month or so on the podcast, and it seems like we're only going to be talking about it more. Both, of course, when it comes out later this fall, and then maybe around award season. Yeah, I mean, this is unlike Joker. This is one that I feel no reservations whatsoever about. Um, going forward. I think this is going to be probably one of my favorite movies of the year. We will see. Um, but of course I'm excited to see this, you know, the reviews weren't like out of this world, amazing for the movie. Um, but a lot of people did enjoy it. I think it is going to be the type of movie when you see it, you will understand why it won the audience award. I think it is important to note that this is an audience, uh, award and not necessarily again, like the best reviewed movie. The one that the critics was the critics favorite because I don't think that would have been Jojo Rabbit if it was the critics' favorite. Um, but this is going to be, you know, a fun movie, a crowd-pleasing movie um, that will probably have, you know, really positive messages, a good heart, um, and you know, that's that's not a bad thing. That's something we could use in 2019. Um, and you know, everything I've seen about this movie suggests that it's going to be a winner, at least for me. Um, and so I, I love to see that it's already resonating with people and hopefully will continue to do so as it hits its wide release. Yeah. And it should be noted that TIFF is a, is a, is a theater or sorry, is a, is a festival that doesn't have something like the golden lion or the, or the, or the palm from can uh, it's, it's biggest award is the, um, it is the, is the audience choice award. Yes, there are some jury awards that it does give out, but the big award is the audience. So you're absolutely right that it's not the critics. It's not critics necessarily who – well, it's not entirely critics, I should say. There are critics who vote in the Audience Choice Awards. Um, it's not entirely critics who are determining this, and you know that will probably speak to what you're saying. Maybe not the best-reviewed movie, but Green Book was not the best-reviewed movie last year, and it still had uh, – I think it won a few awards, if I'm remembering correctly. So, I think actually it, it won the, uh, the Audience Award at TIFF, if I'm being correct – if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, that's funny. I wasn't even making that joke, but – Ah, uh, alas. Well, yeah, and and again, this is another huge indicator of Oscar buzz because I think, um, you know, we we do see a tendency with the Oscars to go with crowd pleasing movies over Best Picture, kind of play it safe, right? Uh, with a movie like Green Book, um, and Slumdog Millionaire is another example of a movie that won the Audience Award at TIFF, um, and then went on to win Best Picture. So what? Even though, you know, Taika Waititi is known for being a, a little bit more avant-garde uh, with some of his filmmaking, I wouldn't be surprised to see this movie, uh, you know, pop up in the Oscar race, pop up in that Best Picture category, you know, as sort of a way for the Academy to say, hey, look, we're hip. We're nominating Taika Waititi for Best Picture. You're telling me that Taika Waititi is, is more avant-garde than Peter Farrelly? I'm shocked. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fake All news. Right. Yeah, on that shocking note, I think we will leave this episode. That is episode 57 of Some Like It, Scott. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? 
All I'll say is that uh, Wake Forest mock trial, you know, I, I talk about our mock trial program on here some. We've had my assistant coach on, Danny, a couple times. Uh, we're coming this year. Uh, we got we got a great crew. We're we're getting uh, getting off the ground running with the new season. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to share our future accomplishments with uh, you all on future episodes of the podcast when Scott asks me how I'm doing. Count on it, Scott. Absolutely count on it. All right. Where can people find you on Twitter? I am at Scarvy Dent. Awesome. And I can be found at, at SShelton2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast at, at Media Plug Pods. We also recently, for our Schmodown podcast, recently started a new Twitter handle for uh, Champs Lunch, which is our Schmodown podcast. That's at, at Champ Lunch, so no S in there. But uh, yeah, check us out over there on Twitter. And we'd love it even more if you check us out over on our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods, where there are a bunch of different reward tiers to check out. And, and depending on how much you're willing or able to pledge to the podcast, you, of course, get different rewards for that. So again, that's www.patreon.com slash media plug pods check it out for yourself if you choose not to support us over on patreon however that's totally fine you can still find us on apple Podcasts and on podbean or wherever else you find your podcasts where we'd appreciate if you rated and reviewed us as well as subscribe and share it so that we can continue to reach a broader audience all right i've said enough we really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies and we'll be back next week with brad pitt's second outing of the year in the form of james gray's latest film ad astra for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. See you next time.